Hello everyone. I'm a little rusty. So I want to apologize for how long it's been taking to get this episode done. And part of that is because I didn't anticipate not being able to find my mouse in the room where my computer is going to be living. <laughs> so I wasn't able to edit. I've been moving stuff steadily for the last few weeks. The holidays happened. So I've had a half edited episode on my computer, which hasn't been plugged in in like a month. And I sincerely apologize. We will be doing our best to get back to a normal schedule soon. I'm going to try. Wish me luck. I don't know how soon, but for now, enjoy the first episode of the new year, 2023. Releases will be sporadic until they're not. Thanks for your patience. We love our audience. We love you. Thank you so very much. And now on with the episode. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts. Will and Phoenix, let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 40, Man's Gotta Have a Code, where we will be looking at Chapter 87 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the wise fool. So as a reminder... We are kind of taking a step back from all of the things that we normally would do on the podcast because we are in the process of moving into a house that we just bought. <sighs> so unfortunately, that means that uploads might be a little more sporadic until we're all settled and we're going to be nixing the 45 second recap and the interesting fact. And honestly, if you'd like to give us a hand, we'd love to hear what your seven words from your life are, or what seven words you like from the book, who your Fernemos is for the section that we're reading. Although we will still be going over our own. And if you have an interesting fact, send it our way. Our Discord is linked in the description of the podcast. And you can always find us on Twitter until that implodes completely at Waystone Pod. Also on Instagram, not on there very often, sorry. But we also have a Facebook, which I am on more often or at least can get notified more often of. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and do our usual disclaimers. So before we begin, let's get these out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, all of our discussions will naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo who doesn't mind having crucial plot details from the future revealed to you ahead of time. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Finally, a word to our community, be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in to chapter 87, The Lathani. All right, so I really like this section. 
it's a huge step away from the tedium and boredom that not only Quoth and his compatriots have been feeling, but honestly, me as an audience member, I have been feeling like, okay, we're doing the same thing week after week, day after day, whatever. This is getting boring. There's only so much of traipse around the woods and learn how to track people who aren't there. Eh, okay, that I can deal with. Yeah, this portion of the book is kind of dull. There's a lot of nothing happening and the characters are spinning their wheels and are as frustrated as the audience. I do think it serves a narrative purpose. It gives us a nice lull before action happens again. But I'm going to admit that I'm really happy to have a rising interest happen in the interest curve right now. Yeah, I mean, things start off with that little jump scare where like, there's something in the bushes. There's probably bandits. There's probably bandits. It's just deer. Yeah. (laughs) I can't say much negative about this, though. Because if I were just on edge, just waiting to have a massive fight for weeks on end, hearing something in the bushes would both make me very nervous and excited. I think the thing that really hits home for Kvothe in this little bit here, is this is the first time that having a fight with someone goes from being just a theoretical thing into something that's almost certainly going to happen in his mind. And he realizes just how woefully unprepared he really is for this. Thank goodness he's with Tempe. Though, I'm not sure that Kvothe really understands just how good Tempe is in a fight, even though he saw Tempe thump Daydan handily in like half a second. Yeah, he's got this idea that yes, Tempe is a good fighter. And he also knows that he himself is woefully ill-prepared to handle himself. It's like a dog chasing a car and he has no idea what he'd ever do if he actually caught it. And now he realizes that he is that dog who has caught the car. Or at least he might be. Turns out he isn't. But this is also, I think, an example of circumstances puncturing Kvothe's myth of ultimate competence. And he's confronting his own lack of experience, his lack of preparation, his own inability to actually handle himself. And then much like jump scares in properties that don't really have scary bits other than what you make in your mind like i'm thinking of gone home and the one jump scare in gone home you kind of feel embarrassed about your fear in that moment about feeling like everything is just heightened and you kind of get that embarrassment feeling like why was i so scared it was nothing I didn't even check to make sure that what I was afraid of was something that was worthy of being afraid of or was what the thing that I thought it was, was. I said was a lot. Sorry, audience. If that was terribly hard to follow, it was the same in my head. I think that also serves a really important purpose for Kvothe from a narrative perspective, though, particularly a character perspective. He's gotten into a groove and this is shaking him out of that groove. It's shaking him out of that routine so that he's actually able to confront his own weaknesses. But 
it gives him that wake up call. And this section is him really confronting his ignorance, which is why we thought of the wise fool when we came up with our theme for this week. On to the meat of this chapter. Tempe and Quoth are walking back to Crossan, which is the last town, we'll call it a town, on the King's Road before you get into what is essentially just forest for miles and miles and miles and miles. And the way that Quoth describes it as being barely able to be called a town or a settlement or anything, and then says something to the line of, if it wasn't on the King's Road, it wouldn't have even warranted a name. And all I can think of is what idiot wouldn't have put the town next to the road, like deep in the forest, so that the only way to get things like, I don't know, food, is traipsing through the Eld. When the King's Road is there, it's like, why would you put a gas station on a place that doesn't have a road instead of right next to the road? And then the other thing that I was thinking about is that every major town or city or area that I have lived in has that one road that everyone kind of has to use, but no one really likes the environment of. Like in Spokane, it was Sprague. And in Seattle area, it's Aurora. And here it's kind of TV highway. That main thoroughfare where everyone sets up shop and that can be from the grimiest looking whatever the heck to a lot of auto dealerships to flooring companies to home improvement stores right next to one another. And this seems like what the King's Road really is, is where everyone just sets up shop. It actually feels to me a little more like an interstate. Like it's a highway. It is the way to get from point A to B as fast as possible, theoretically as safely as possible. So like if you look at the US interstate system, originally we had the US highways like Route 66, Route 1, things like that. And when the interstate system came to be, a lot of cities that had relied on the old US highway system for their commerce kind of died up and dried out as people moved to towns and cities that were closer to the interstates. These interstates serve as you know, ways for people to take large volumes of goods, services, traffic at high speed from one place to another with minimal interruption. And the King's Road, my vision of it is it's this large paved road, sort of like the old Roman roads. Because it's paved, you can take large wagon caravans without having to worry about, you know, bumpy terrain that causes broken wagons. So you can go much farther, much faster. Also, because it's paved, you don't have to work your horses as hard because your wagons will just wheel more easily. So that's kind of my vision of it. Maybe a little different, like because there are roads and then there are roads. And it's hard to understate just what a difference a paved area actually makes. So I never once said it wasn't paved. I never once said it was. I know. I'm just saying this is my vision of it. I'm not trying to argue. You promise? Promise. 
I have a different vision of it and it is just as valid or invalid as yours. I don't think that they're incompatible. Yeah. So anyway, when Kvothe and Tempe get to Crossan, they go to the grocery and knowing that they've got some time to kill until their order's ready, they head to the local tavern. Because there are roughly 30 buildings in this entire city, town, settlement, whatever. And there's really not a whole lot that could be done other than go to the tavern, which I think is attached to the inn. So Kvothe is kind of surprised to see it busy because his idea is that because it's middle of the day, most people are going to be at work. And by at work, he means harvesting or tending livestock or doing whatever else work would be probably in a place like Noir. Yeah, so that would be milling or cooping, blacksmithing, things like that. But instead what he comes across, what they come across, is a tavern full of mercenaries looking for work. And every one of them turns their head and stares at Tempe. And they all know who he is, or at least what he is, because he is wearing his mercenary reds. And they refer to the Adem as blood shirts. Well, they wear red shirts so that bad guys can't see them bleed. Thanks, Deadpool. It kind of feels like a setting from Roadhouse. Mm. The double deuce. <laughs> like, they're, everybody's there kind of itching for a fight and, you know... They're not really there to drink. They're there to fight. And part of it is that while they're all looking for work, none of them particularly want to work. I think it's possible that people do actually want to work that are currently sitting in that tavern. There's just too much competition. There are too many people and not enough work. I think part of it is also that the work that's available is at this point, highly risky because of the bandit activity. You know, they know that this is a good spot to hire on as a caravan guard. And that's the trade that these guys know. And it's mostly guys with a few exceptions. Like most of this book, go ahead. So they're all in a position where maybe if there were caravans going the other way, they'd be more likely to hire on. But right now, Fewer people are trying to go through the Eld because it's been so dangerous. And those that are, aren't paying as much because they don't have as much money available because they keep getting robbed. A lot of good the mercenaries are doing, huh? Yep. It also is something where Kvothe is really able to see the macroeconomic effects of this bandit activity firsthand. Now, who's to say that the bandits haven't also been going back to town to get resupplied. In fact, some of them might be in this room. That's what I was thinking. I mean, there's a finite supply, and you kind of got to figure that when times are tough for people who make their job fighting, banditry is the next logical step. So anyway, one of the guys in the tavern, a man named Tam, starts picking a fight with Tempe. First mistake. And... You know, Tempe is handling it as well as he can. Tempe just seems nonplussed. Tempe is not afraid to fight, even when he doesn't particularly 
go looking for one. But he's so calm about it. I think that's what's infuriating Tam. And then every time that Kvothe dares to speak up, Tam just, I wasn't talking to you. Or shut your trap. Or gets ever more threatening and pissed off. There's kind of a big dog, little dog dynamic between Kvothe and Tempe. Tempe is the big dog. He doesn't need to talk. He lets his actions and his demeanor do the speaking. Whereas Kvothe is always yapping. He's always instigating a little bit. (laughs) And Tempe is pretty... There's a sense of amusement in this for him. I think Tempe also kind of wants to put this guy in his place. He knows that as a ADEM mercenary, he gets paid better. And it is in his interest to make sure that people understand why ADEM mercenaries are worth that 20 penny a day charge. Two jots. Is that 20 pennies? I really don't understand nor really care about the conversion of jots and pennies and half penny and all that. I don't. It's just... If I can figure out which one's smaller, I'm good. Point is, as an ADEM mercenary, Tempe commands a salary 20 times higher than the other guys. So it's in Tempe's interest to show that, yeah, he's worth the upcharge. So he does. Handily. (laughs) Before going and starting in on the fight, there are some little bits of Tempe kind of having to verify with both what Tam is saying. Tam has a very thick accent and he's speaking very fast and he's saying words that are unfamiliar to Tempe. And once Tempe understands what Tam has been saying, maybe not what Tam has been meaning by what he is saying, but just the words that he's been saying, he's like, oh, okay, what is your issue? I don't understand why. I mean, are you complimenting my mother by calling her a word that I, Phoenix, will not utter? Yeah. Tempe's response is, thank you. I will pass it on to her. (laughs) Pretty much. But the idea that in ADEM culture, having sex for money, like, or rather being paid to have sex with them is fine. It's an honor receiving gifts receiving money in exchange for providing sex is not seen as anything to be ashamed of and i think that we as a society would learn a lot from that it shouldn't be looked down upon it shouldn't be treated any differently than someone who uses their strength to earn a living yeah it's just any other industry And if people are treated ethically as part of it, that's really all you can ask. And if they're doing what they want to do. Absolutely. If it's something that they are both willing and consenting to, I don't have a problem as long as they are being treated well. And I think that as a society, we should provide tools so that they are treated well. Yeah. Anyway, going on to more of the posturing and attempting to shame Tempe into anger, into rashness, into making mistakes or just riling up. Not sure, but Tempe doesn't take the bait. 
And he says calmly, all right, I can take four of you easily. Go ahead and get three compatriots and bring as many women as you would like. And for Tempe, that's not an insult. It isn't something that he's saying to rile Tam up. Actually, I think there is a little bit. It's just not in the way that we would think or the way that Tam would think. So in Tempe's mind, women are the best fighters. Yes. So he's thinking, yeah, you're probably going to need some women to help to fight me. Right. It's not so much like big, strong man need your mommy. It's more, okay, you don't seem like much of a challenge. I'd like a challenge. Can you get some women, please? Thank you. I'll even let you use some cheat codes. You can use as many as you like. (laughs) It's kind of what he's saying. And the thing about it is that in his culture, the women are the teachers for combat, for just general everything. They are the wise ones. They are to be revered and respected. Yeah. Like I say, it is a studied insult. It's just the insult that he means is not the one that Tam hears. Or the one that Kvothe hears. So as he gets up to go fight Tam and the other two people that Tam has managed to convince to fight Tempe, a blonde woman and another dude, that's pretty much all the information that we really get about them. Tempe looks back at Kvothe and says, watch my back. And Kvothe is all impressed that Tempe knows idiomatic speech. And that is not what Tempe means. Tempe means literally watch my back. Learn from my example. Watch me. Use my posture as an example. Do you see how this is actually helping me to stay in balance? And Kvothe thinks it means watch my back. Help me out if I get overwhelmed. So Kvothe, in all of his nervous teenage energy, is like, but I don't know how to fight. How do I fight? I'm going to get my knife out because I think I might have to fight. And even then, he hasn't really been in a knife fight before. He's realizing, oh, I really hope I don't have to do anything here. So he's aware of what bar fights result in, which can be sprained wrists or broken fingers. He's treated people. He's watched people have fights. And he wants no part in that. So he's just sitting there, a pile of nerves, watching what he's really hoping will not be spilling onto him. And within three or four moves, fight's over. Because Tempe is that good. Tempe is Dalton from Roadhouse. (laughs) If we're using the Roadhouse metaphor. He's like Patrick Swayze. He comes in cool, calm, collected. Not there to start a fight, but he will definitely finish it. And overall, the fight is a non- Thing in this chapter. That's not what all of the chapter is about. It's not really what any of the chapter is about. It's the reputation of the Adem, the skill of the Adem, and then afterward, it's a discussion on the Lithani. The Lithani is interesting to me. It seems like it's a lot of things. It's in addition to being kind of inscrutable, it reminds me a lot of a Zen Koan which is a riddle that you're supposed to contemplate. It doesn't have an answer, but the act of contemplating the riddle is what helps you to find meaning or purpose. It's not just a set of rules. It seems like it's more like principles. I was going to say it's more of a moral code. Yeah. It's guiding 
how you make decisions, but it is not what your actions are that say whether or not it was part of the Lothani. Your actions do matter, I'd say, but it's not the outcome specifically. Fair enough. Your actions, though, are not the Lothani. Your code and your morals are the Lothani, and they inform your actions. And then specifically those points of choosing and then acting on those choices. Yeah. Again, it's about what are the principles that guide your decision making as opposed to being told what decisions to make. Or what the decisions are, really. At the end of the day, that's not the Lothani. It's how you came to those decisions is the Lothani. And it's also something like Kvothe isn't used to thinking this way. For him, he's used to thinking of, okay, there are rules that have been handed down, whether it's the iron law or the rules of the university or, you know, the things that people have told him that he has to do, right? Whether by custom or anything like that. Having something that's a little more focused on his own agency and teaching him how to make decisions as opposed to what decisions to make is not something he's familiar with. The Lathani kind of reminds me a little bit of this class I took in college or trying to understand the Lathani is kind of like the class I took in college. It started off with a boot camp where we were not given instructions about what the goal or even what we were supposed to do during the boot camp was. Each one of us in that class, and I think that there were a maximum of maybe 20 of us, was in charge of our own part of whatever the outcome was. There were some guiding principles and ways that we could express how we were feeling. And there was a pile of art supplies. There was encouragement to express oneself creatively, but no guide on what specific actions to take. We could check in with one another and see how each one of us was feeling. We could go talk to our mentors, but every time that we'd talk to the mentors and say, what are we supposed to be doing? They'd turn it around and say, what do you think you're supposed to be doing? What are you doing? Not what are you supposed to be doing? What are you doing? What is this thing that you are currently doing? Nothing. You're talking to me. That's a thing that you're doing. What were you doing before you were talking to me? Painting? What were you painting? Just random shirt. And all of us kind of just made decisions to do what we wanted to do. And because it was a group of people that were designers and artists, a couple of programmers, I think, but mostly it was designers and artists and sound designers, maybe. The thing that we wound up doing was using the art supplies and making paintings. And at the end, we all gathered together and kind of showed off our works in a gallery situation, which is a completely different outcome than our teacher had seen before at a different boot camp that she's run, at any other boot camp that she's run. There are some times where people do poetry readings or that they play instruments or that they make games and show off the results of their games or they, I don't know. But the whole class was set up that way. We had to decide what we were doing, what each individual one of us was going to do in that class. And what I wound up doing is making sock monsters for charity. I made stuffed animals. I sold them to people and I gave the money 
to St. Jude's. Other people made leather armor or practiced falconry or (laughs) any number of other things made games, made art, bettered their own lives, engaged in yoga. Just we all found the things that spoke to us and came back and presented them to the class and set our own goals and set our own everything. But we used the check-in methods and all of the things we had learned from our boot camp as guiding principles. And that's really what trying to teach the Lothani felt like to me, trying to understand it kind of felt like to me. The thing that I really took away from this was this is Kvothe really hitting the point in his understanding of himself where he's really starting to understand the gaps in his ignorance. Up until now, Kvothe hasn't really known what he doesn't know. He's made a big show out of trying to pretend like he knows everything. And this is him really embracing his own ignorance. And in so doing, this is him grasping wisdom for the first time. This is him being vulnerable with someone saying, you know, I have no clue what this means. This th- I, I know it means something. And I realize that the words that I'm using to describe it make no sense and are probably not sufficient and are not accurate. I don't understand this. And yet I also acknowledge the reality of what this is. This is something and it's something I can't comprehend. This is the first time that Tempe actually says, yeah, you're actually starting to get it. I don't know what it is either. (laughs) That's kind of what the mentors said. I don't know either. I don't know what you guys are supposed to do. Yeah, I've done this myself, but I don't know what it is. In that boot camp, it wasn't about what did the teachers or the mentors do? What had they done? What was it for them? It's supposed to be, what is it for you? This is a very subjective form of morality, specifically in that it is about finding your own code, which can be different for each person, can have a different set of principles and values and that are expressed in unique ways. Like it isn't a case of always do this thing, like having a set of rules. It is a case of live in such a way that you honor these principles. And we're not going to exhaustively document every single way that that might be. You have to be able to evaluate a situation based on your principles and then figure out how that gets expressed through you and your choices. So I think that's pretty cool. And when it comes down to it, all of the stories, all of the outsider's perspectives trying to explain what Lilithani is are inadequate, but trying to put labels and understanding and precision and concise descriptors on it have turned it from being about a moral code, about this almost incomprehensible principle, idea, thought, guide, shorthanded to the ADEM just have this magical thing called the Lothani that helps them fight, that makes them the best in the world, that makes them this way or that way. Like it's fire in their hands or their heart or something to that effect that they have a special word or magic about them. It gets bastardized 
and a game of telephone played to the point where there's no recognition of reality in the tales of what the Lothani is. And in the same way that when people see artists do amazing things, amazing work, and look at it and go, I'm so jealous of your skill and talent. I could never do that. You're so lucky to have that talent, to have that just natural ability. Every single artist that I have ever spoken to always says, it's not about innate skill, it's not about talent. It's not about springing forth fully formed as an artist. It's about hours and hours and hours and hours of practice and training. And that's exactly what Kvothe is in for. If he wants to learn to fight like the Adem, he's going to have to learn how to train. And the Lathani is about how do you train to act decisively in a moment according to whatever principle you have. That's what made the fight so brief is because Tempe in an instant knew what decisions to make because of his training and how to make those decisions quickly and decisively. That was the Lithuanian action. That's what made him so effective as a fighter. That same thing could make any person applying that principle really effective in whatever field they chose to apply it because it is about how to assess and arrive at decisions and then act on those decisions. So with that, I think we're at the point where we need to find a Phronemos. So it's your turn. So why is it Tempe? (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. Why is it Tempe? Hmm. Well, first, he understands that to teach, you first have to admit whether or not you know the full amount of the thing that you are trying to teach. Sometimes you learn more by teaching. You unlock those, oh, moments when you are trying to show a partially formed amount of knowledge to another person and working collaboratively to come to understanding. For instance, if I try to teach you anything that I have been learning in my guitar lessons that maybe I'm not 100% on, and then you pick up on it and you're like, oh, it's this thing, oh. And then you talk about what your new understanding is. And you talk to me about it and I just go, oh, that's your understanding of what this is. That makes so much more sense. I understand it better now. Now that I've tried to share it with you and you've talked it back with me. And so Tempe is aware of his limitations. Tempe is aware of whether or not he has the expertise and is not afraid of admitting when he is not fully knowledgeable about something, unlike Quoth, who is, I know everything about everything because I've dabbled in everything. And Tempe, who has studied the Lithani, who has studied martial art, who has studied under very experienced teachers for years, is aware that he doesn't know everything. And he is finding value still in teaching Quoth. He is also finding ways to teach Quoth without breaking his moral code, without breaking 
his internal rules, his societal rules, where you don't teach your leader. But Quoth is not just the leader of the band of mercenaries that Tempe is a part of. Quoth is also Tempe's student when it comes to the Adem language. And so therefore, because he's already a student, he can be a student of the Lothani under Tempe. And Tempe, again, I think the biggest reason he's the best and only choice for Fronimos embraces the fact that he does not know everything. Absolutely. The thing we get from Tempe is that he understands that even though to most everyday folks that he encounters in the world, he is the best fighter they will ever see. He is well aware that he is not anywhere close to the best fighter that he has ever seen. He knows that compared to you know, a lot of the women in his society, he is a novice. He is just someone who knows enough to get himself into trouble, but not enough to get himself out of it. He's good to take on four people, but he also knows there are a lot of people that he's trained with who will be able to do 20 people just as easily, if not easier. So yeah, I think he's confident without being arrogant and he is humble without being self-defeating. So I think that's a, a really good place to live and it's a good balance to hit. And uh, then it's also your turn for thing of the week. That is true. So man, it was like a month and a half ago now. We went back north, not quite as north as we used to live, but kind of halfway between. And you performed a wedding ceremony for two of our friends, one of whom showed us a fantastic new show by the people that were at one point the company College Humor, the video company College Humor, and now our dropout. It's called Um Actually. And apparently it was on YouTube for years before we were introduced to it. And this is the greatest thing about YouTube. You can discover new things just all the time. And um, actually basically takes the piss out of all of the gatekeeping nerds and turns it into a game show because I know all of the nerds and geeks that I absolutely love and adore and enjoy being around have all been this person that is in the middle of a conversation and somebody says something and it might be slightly incorrect and we all go, um, actually, and then go on to explain the real or what we think is the real situation or esoteric bit of knowledge that we now get to feel superior about knowing. And the show itself is like 13 questions-ish that aren't really questions. They're statements that are incorrect about the properties and nerdy shirt that you know and love. And it's delightful. Yeah, I definitely have some real fondness for it. You know, there's some great contestants on there. Like some of my favorites are John Goots Gutierrez or uh, Matt Mercer, who is pretty much an ace every time he shows up. Especially if they ask him any D&D &D questions. 
I mean, it's really funny to see this guy who was for a long time professionally primarily known as a voice actor pivot into being like the arch lore master of D&D. <laughs> and then also Brennan Lee Mulligan. He's super hilarious, even as he's amazingly aggro and sort of plays up the heel role. He's also a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I mean, the whole thing is done with a sense of good humor and openness, and it's gentle fundamentally. Like, people are there to have a good time. They're there to talk about what they love. And usually things end up turning into these weird little breaks that lead to people telling stories about things that they've experienced. And that's when it really comes to life. And then they drop the whole hyper-competitive element, and then it just turns into these Weird stories that you would only hear from people who have lived this. And what makes me really happy is that they have had episodes that are all women and they don't dumb down the questions. They have people of all genders, all gender expressions, and everyone is kind to one another, even as it's a competition. There are only a couple of rules. One of those rules is... You have to proceed your answer with um actually. And the other rule is you can interrupt the host anytime you want. And the number of people who have had their points stolen by just not saying um actually at the beginning of their statement. And then another person jumps in and goes, um actually what they said. <laughs> It's hilarious every single time it happens. And I think that the funniest parts are when it's, you didn't say I'm actually, and then another person goes, I'm actually, and then repeats what the other person said. Oh no, that wasn't right in the first place. You just didn't say I'm actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, those are pretty great. It's a lot of fun and we've definitely enjoyed it. I mean, we have some holes in our knowledge. We don't know much about Pokemon. We're just a little too old to have really gotten into that when we were kids and it just never stuck with either of us. We've introduced it to yet another one of our friends and between the three of us we have most of the Venn diagram covered but not all of it and there have been episodes on like cartoons and on wrestling which wrestling is not something that either one of us knows anything about but it's still really fun to watch the show or anime or like reality TV shows was the most recent one we watched. And it's just so fun to watch people geek out over things like Ghibli movies and Lord of the Rings and comic books and fantasy books and just pretty much all of these things that so many of us get so invested in and know and love. So there are like 80 episodes available on YouTube, so you can watch it for free. And then when you eventually run out of that and realize that there are at least two more seasons left on Dropout, you just sign up for Dropout if you have five bucks lying around. It's worth it. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to watch a lot of the rest of the things that are on Dropout as well. Also, Adam Conover has been a guest on it a few times, so maybe that'll entice you because it's really fun to watch when especially he forgets to say I'm actually. 
<laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's that's what we've been doing to kind of wind down recently. We don't have it in us right now to watch a lot of politics. We don't have it in us right now to watch a lot of things that are serious competitions or stressy or aggro or any of that stuff because big life changes and moving is its own special kind of heck. And so watching a silly game show where people try to out-nerd one another, ah... It's kind of nice. So nice. So that brings us to our seven words. You had the book this time. What'd you pick? All right. I highlighted a bunch of things. At first, it seemed like I wasn't really going to run into many seven words. And that the seven words that I did run into were all kind of not great. It was a fight waiting to happen. I could have done it, mind you. I do like that the response that Tempe has when Tam calls his mother a unkind word for sex worker. You are very kind. I thank you. None of that really struck me as appropriate for picking a, a seven word sentence that meant something to me. And so I kept going and then we start talking about the Lothani. And then in the Lothani section, there's a lot more green highlighter in my book. So there's things like the Lothani is a type of knowing. Tempe paused, obviously considering his words carefully. Lothani is the thing that shows us. But the thing that I chose was Kfoth saying, explain it. I will try to understand. Nice. So I had words from life and mine is, we are finally making our own waystone. I say this as we are recording from our new home for the first time and, you know, just having this space that is truly ours, that we can make how we like, that is comfortable, that is quiet and cozy. It's really, really liberating for us. And I've definitely felt a sense of peace over all of this, knowing that we're where we want to be. I like our home. I like our neighborhood. And yeah, we're really excited for all of this. We're no longer next to the airport. We have a park literally right outside our front door. We have walking trails and lots of little places that we can go just to hang out. We have friends nearby. Our room is cozy. I have a place to do crafting work. We're finally getting some furniture that we've been putting off for years. I gotta say, if anyone ever gives you the, just do this and you will be successful at saving a lot of money, it's incorrect. We have right now looking around, we have neglected a lot of things in service of getting to this point. It took years of saving money, of making decisions not to get furniture that would be better for the purpose we needed it to be. So like getting a new dresser or having a bed that we are legit comfortable on. Our old bed was not bad enough to warrant spending the money on, but it wasn't good to sleep on. And that's been for years. It's not just easy when you don't have an income that is allowing you a lot of 
disposable income. And so we feel for anyone that's going through that. There is hope. It's still kind of hard for us to really internalize that this is our place. But as we're moving our furniture in and as we're making our decisions about how we want to set up our cozy areas, our lovely spaces, our things that have been in boxes for literally years because we had hopes and dreams of getting our own place. It's starting to feel more like home. And it is my goal to kind of document updating our space little by little on YouTube if anyone wants to watch us turn this very blank slate into a nerdy haven. Yeah, we're really excited for you know what the coming years hold. We're not going to do everything all at once. We're going to be doing it one room at a time as we save up money and resources and time and all that fun stuff. And I think that there is something to be said about taking our time and doing it incrementally. I think that we as a society undervalue incremental change, but I have ideas of how I'm going to still be kind of engaging on YouTube without being like, okay, so we got one little bit of this done and now you have to wait for three years to see the results. That's not really fun for anybody, but taking our time and doing it right is still a very important thing to me. Yeah. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapter 88 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of In Medias Res. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would love it if you would become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get life updates, where you can get art projects from me, where you can get podcasts that we don't put out on the regular internet or podcast apps, all that stuff. Although this time around, we're taking a break because we're moving and not doing the fifth Sandman yet. That'll come in three to five months, something like that. And also you can join our Discord server where you can talk with us directly and share your stories with our community and have some fun. And share memes. Share memes. Also, we encourage you to share interesting facts, recommended things, and phronemoses. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! But I don't think that we're the right source for going line by line, trying to figure out the etymology of certain words. Is it entomology, etymology? Etymology. I got it right. You did. Yeah. Entomology would be bugs. That's what I... <laughs> I knew one of them was history language stuff, and one of them was...
bugs. <laughs> you got it right. Yay. <laughs>